0: Javier woke slowly, opening his crusted eyelids, lifting his cuffed hands to rub the back of his head, looking incredulously at the blood and bits of hair on his hand. Pablo drove cautiously, constantly adjusting his position in order to have any kind of adequate view through the splintered windshield, only glancing in the rearview mirror as we heard Javier
1: begin to move in the backseat. What I want to know, Javier, is who called you? Who called Álvaro to let him know Senor Kennedy had been released from jail? He paused, then added, Which guard betrayed me? Javier averted
0: his eyes, looking out the back passenger window into the middle distance. A man already ruined and resigned to the worst.
1: Do not shit in Marcar unless you want to eat it.
0: Pablo turned off the highway onto a dirt road that led to his hacienda. The road was lined with small concrete-block tin-roofed shacks. Grubby little pot-bellied kids, nursing mothers and starving dogs in the patches of mud and weeds that passed for their front yards. Their husbands, I suspected, worked for Pablo, tending his house and his grounds. Though likely none of them were married to the more prosperous-looking men, who carried automatic weapons and guarded the main entrance to the hacienda. As the wounded Escalade pulled through the harched hacienda entrance, two guards rushed out to open its doors, one
1: for Pablo and one for me. Get that piece of shit out of the back. Pablo instructed the guard who'd opened the door. Put him in the room behind the pool and don't do any more harm to him. (laughs) Poor thing, he has been through enough this afternoon, and I want him conscious to answer the questions I have for him.
0: Javier didn't struggle, as the guards yanked him from the back seat of the Escalade. He was a man resigned to his fate, whatever that might be. A sort of courage I likened to that of a medieval lord going to his death praising his king so that his family wouldn't be slaughtered as well. It momentarily increased my esteem for Javier. Until Pablo said, You know
1: that he knows I'm not going to have him killed. He does?
0: I felt an immediate sense of relief. I was, at heart, a pampered American businessman, and all of my current associations suddenly seemed too medieval for my comfort. I also reacted to Pablo's mercy with a cruel sense of injustice. He tried to kill us. No, no, Pablo assured me, walking me to one of the guest rooms in his expansive hacienda so I could clean up. He is much more valuable to me alive. I stood under the shower in Pablo's guest room for a good 15 minutes. I'd spent little more than 24 hours in that grimy Mexican jail, but it felt as if I had to wash off a month of filth. When I emerged from the shower, dressed in the fresh clothes Pablo had his minions lay out a pair of khaki shorts and a white Oxford cloth sports shirt that fit surprisingly well considering they were ordered for me on such short notice. Pablo met me in his courtyard. It was only then, once again clean and clear-headed, that I took in the splendor of Pablo's hacienda. The size and scope of the space dwarfed even Alvaro's impressive spread. The variety of the flora, The intricate plan of their planting exceeded geometrically the thoughtfulness of the landscape architect Alvaro had employed. Alvaro's place looked like the most well-designed courtyard Marriott you'd ever seen. Pablo's looked like the Southern Hemisphere's answer to Versailles. Pablo was waiting for me, seated at a wrought iron table, nursing a Cuban and a heavy lead crystal glass filled with an amber liquid. Armagnac. He said, lifting his glass. Will you have some? Love to. Pablo poured from a decanter set on the middle of the table and offered the glass to me as he spoke.
1: Here is what I have learned, Clint. I have learned that you have performed a great service for Alvaro, but that he has proving to be ungrateful to you for it. I took a sip of the Armagnac. It was not my favorite beverage, but it felt bracing at the moment. Just what I needed. I believe that you will find the volume of business that I can offer you far exceed what Alvaro was able to supply. He rolled the cigar
0: around in his mouth and took a puff exhaling a perfect smoke ring.
1: He watched it billow and dissipate before continuing. I believe that you will also find I am much more appreciative of the services rendered to me than Álvaro could ever be. That is because while Álvaro is very handsome and a good bullfighter, he does not have much of a business head. I mean, he is too crazy in the head to be good at business. Pablo clarified.
0: I listened intently and found myself nodding as Pablo talked.
1: I have spoken with Javier Edling.
0: When I frowned,
1: the question, when did you get to speak with him at length, hanging in the air? Pablo shrugged. At least, I talked to him while you were in the shower. Have you noticed that Javier seemed absent lately from Alvaro's inner circle? I nodded that yes, I had. Aha, well, many people have noticed this. Javier tells me it is because Alvaro has taken it in his head that Javier is stealing from him. Scheming money from the street dealers who sell for him not reporting the full amounts that are taken in each day and lining his pockets with the difference. I have to tell you, Clint, I find such a scenario most impossible. Javier is a beautiful man, but timid, much too cowardly to steal from his brother-in-law. Pablo shook his head and ashed his cigar in a silver ashtray set on a small table behind him before he continued. Alvaro wanted Javier to prove his loyalty, and he found a way this afternoon that he thought was brilliant. Only a crazy man can think of such things. The guard you bribed today in order to get a message to me? I took another sip of my Armagnac, bracing for what was to come. Clint, the guard called Alvaro as soon as you had made your call to Miguel to tell him that I was on my way to set you free. Alvaro sent Javier to prove his loyalty by harming.
0: The words my whole life seemed surreal in that moment. My hand slipped from my crystal glass of Armagnac as I sat frozen. Even alcohol wasn't going to help thaw me out. Pablo let me sit like that for several minutes. Then he stubbed out his cigar in the silver ashtray and reached a hand over to place it on top of mine.
1: There are four major drug cartels in eastern Mexico. Those of us who run these organizations, we have many, you might say, subcontractors who work for us. Alvaro's subcontraction business is under my flag. And it is the least in size because he is the most unpredictable. It is difficult for an unpredictable boss to retain loyal employees for any length of time. I believe you should come and work directly for me and for my friends too. I believe you'll find out to be a, how do you say it, less hostile working environment.
0: I couldn't immediately respond to the offer. The fact that you have been targeted for assassination does not enter you intellectually. It is a physical knowledge. And when I was finally done throwing up at the base of a really lush pink rhododendron, Pablo handed me a pristine sheer cotton batiste handkerchief from his breast pocket to wipe my mouth and my brow. I held the cloth to my lips and panted into it, trying to breathe in some carbon dioxide and get my breathing under control.
1: So what do you say, Gringo? What do you think about coming to work with
0: me? I frowned. Partially because I was still panting heavily and, and partially to indicate that I had questions. But mostly at the name he had just called me.
1: <laughs> you know, gringo is not a derogatory term. It only means that you are not Spanish. I gave myself a couple of seconds to let that sink in. Pablo,
0: if we do this, if I, if, if I come to work with you, what will Alvaro do? Do you? <laughs> Yes, to me.
1: Nothing. I'm sending Javier home to Alvaro, and he will deliver a message to him from me. You will never have trouble from Alvaro again.
0: I felt myself on the edge of once again being able to take a deep breath, until Pablo
1: added, Unless, you know, he is much madder than even I believe him to be. I felt like, what? Not a kid on Christmas
0: morning. Kid on Christmas morning is happy, of course, but... He knows he's only got an hour or so, depending on the wherewithal and generosity of his parents, to tear open packages containing new things, two or ten or twenty presents, and he'll like the contents of some, love the contents of one or two, and those that he likes or loves will suffice to counteract the disappointment he feels about the rest. In other words, the ecstasy of Christmas morning is conditional, and short-lived, and even a kid knows it. I felt like a young man on the day after he has graduated from college relaxed and loose all his life before him not knowing what was coming but not intimidated by whatever lie ahead proud of having met a rigorous goal and turning to divine the next milestone with riotous self-confidence part of the reason for my buoyant attitude was the easy solidarity Pablo had offered to me when I told him Alvaro was not the only person who was causing me problems at the moment. There was also Abe, and what Abe was demanding I provide to him in order that I could keep my little laundry business afloat. I told Pablo everything, and then he poured himself another splash of Armagnac and sat back, looking over his lush gardens while he contemplated my difficulty. I suggest, then, he said a smile pulling at the corners of his mouth. We give this Abe exactly what he wants. Now I walked behind Pablo and Abe, down the wide and glorious mile-long Paseo de Mateo, paying only vague attention to what Pablo was saying drawing Abe's attention to this piece of architectural interest or that point of historical importance. The Paseo de Monteo had been rightly described as Meredith's Champs-Élysées, so Pablo, the ultimate salesman from whom even I could take lessons, was reveling in a richness of topics for conversation. I had told Pablo that, knowing Abe, the beautiful museums along the magnificent shady street would hold no fascination for our guest. Stick to talking about how many times you've been invited by the owners to have dinner at the glorious Caseo Museo Monts, a museum, yes, and yet still a private home. Or the cost of the renovations of this other hacienda, a figure Pablo would have no way of knowing but that he would invent because, of course, Abe was told that he and I had been responsible for the work. I didn't pay strict attention to the tales Pablo was spinning because there was no need. Abe was riveted and impressed hungry to eat up whatever the charming Pablo fed him. Instead, I watched the two of them walk, a few paces ahead of me, Abe waddling along in the mint-colored jacket he couldn't quite button over his bulging belly, a piece of clothing that looked like it had been borrowed from a refugee of a 1980s country club. And Pablo gliding down the sidewalk, his signature white linen blazer draped over his shoulders. I marveled anew at how upon Pablo's trim frame, white linen did not seem to wilt in the humid heat of my beloved Merida. In any case, by the time we reached Merida, there was very little reason to be concerned about anything that Pablo might have to say to Abe. Abe was completely under his spell. As we'd driven from the airport after picking Abe up in Pablo's Escalade, we'd passed resort after resort, all virtually the same. Big, new buildings, each room with an ocean view within a complex that included banquet halls, tennis courts, and golf courses, all at the end of another palm-lined driveway, each resort overflowing with fat Americans who'd opted for the all-inclusive, all the food and drink they desired to pacify gaudy appetites that were never quite quenched. Cameras around pudgy necks, enormous straw handbags slung over the drooping bronzed skin of forearms, They lined up to board brightly painted open-air buses to go off on day trips to ogle the quaint huts of the natives and snap pictures of themselves posing before mine ruins for the folks back home. And Pablo had intimated carefully, never actually boldly lying, that he and I had built so many of these resorts, that is, the ones we did not own outright. As Abe strained to look out the car's window at each new passing marvel, almost drooling at the cheap splendor of it all, the phrase, gullible little peasant, kept echoing in my mind. Abe's tour of Merida was an absolute tour de force. Though in truth, Pablo's star-making performance, with me as director, had begun before we'd even left the airport. Call your friends and customs, I told Pablo before April. With your business, you must have some. Have them detain Abe. When he gets off the plane, have them search his bags, his documents, and do it aggressively. Have them accuse him of, I don't know, smuggling, trying to enter the country illegally, whatever they think is plausible.
1: Pablo had nodded at me. If that's what you want, I thought we were trying to impress this American friend of yours.
0: He's no friend, Pablo. But he's going to be a whole lot friendlier when you resolve his problems getting through customs. Pablo had raised an eyebrow at me and smiled. He and I watched from the glass-enclosed passenger pickup area at the airport, as Abe's Aero Mexico flight arrived. The passengers deplaned a few harried businessmen, along with the usual chubby, ugly Americans. Abe and— Holy fuck. I squinted out on the tarmac. With Abe, was that who I thought it was? I watched, horrified, as two security trucks, yellow and blue lights, flashing from their roofs. Squealed up to where Abe was walking, and six armed custom agents surrounded him, gripping his arms, forcing him onto the tarmac. One guard prodding Abe in his oversized gut with the butt of his rifle, and Charlotte, sweet angel Charlotte. Watching our ruse go down with a gaping mouth, one delicate hand held over her fast-beating heart. Stop them, Pablo. I poked the elegant Pablo with my elbow. Call your men off. Pablo
1: smiled. But Clint... You wanted to give Abe a heroin experience, and my men have only just begun.
0: I saw Charlotte bring that small, delightful hand to her mouth, stifling a sob. Please, Pablo, call them off. Now, Pablo shook his head, but he stood immediately and pushed open the glass doors that led to the
1: tarmac. What are you doing to this man? He shouted as he approached the shakedown in progress. This man is my business partner, and I take offense that he is receiving such a poor welcome to our country.
0: The armed guards, off-script now too, backed off, and one of them sputtered, "'Sorry, Mr. Navarro, we're only doing—' "'Your job, I know,' Pablo said quickly, cutting him off before the hapless actor could add, "'What you told us to do.' Pablo waved them away, took Abe's arm, and led him to the building.
1: "'Abe Cohen, I am so glad to meet you. Come inside. It is cooler inside, of course, and your friend Clint is here to meet.'
0: Right there with him, in fact." I'd rushed to the tarmac directly behind him. I had the lovely Charlotte's pale, soft hand in mine, patting it to calm her. Abe's madras shirt was soaked through with sweat, his mint-green jacket retrieved from where it had been flung during his arrest, now rumpled under an arm, and he was panting both from fear and the heat.
2: Clint, I cannot believe I am glad to see you.
0: His recent tormentors scrambled to obey Pablo's barked orders.
1: Find Mr. Cohen's luggage and put it in the trunk of my car. Clint? Pablo? This is Charlotte,
0: Abe said offhandedly as he limped into the cool air of the terminal. Pablo turned to offer her his hand
1: in greeting. Delighted to meet you.
0: Yes, I said, delighted. Charlotte smiled at me and winked at our secret. Charlotte strolled with me now, behind Pablo and Abe keeping their leisurely pace. The day was as humid as Merida afternoons ever were. Charlotte's face and neck were glowing and damp. And as we walked, I caught her faint smell of roses and fresh-cut pine with each hot breeze. The first time we'd met in David and Candace's kitchen, I had not made it past Charlotte's aura, or the red cape her father had handed me, to remember what she might have been wearing. Today I noted her decidedly upscale yellow silk shift, and the Hermes scarf around her neck. You look... stunning. Charlotte brushed off my compliment.
2: He'd sent me to Saks before he left to come down here this morning. He told me to get something for myself to wear, something that looked professional. He didn't want me getting off the plane in my usual cotton slacks and button-down and having to introduce me as his secretary. He didn't want me to make a fool of him.
0: It's hardly your fault if that happens, I replied, and Charlotte, truly a professional, only smiled. How did your family meet the Cohens? I asked, to change the subject. You tell me your Cohen story and I'll tell you mine. Charlotte's smile broadened. Whether at the thought of the family we both loved or at my double entendre, I couldn't be sure.
2: We know them from a long way back, long enough that I've known them all my life.
0: Odd that we've never met before the other night. She chuckled, not particularly amused.
2: (laughs) My parents came to this country in the 1980s, part of the Mariel Boatlift. Daddy was a landscape architect in Cuba. In America, he became a gardener. One of his first jobs was mowing the grass at David and Candace's. That's how he met David, and David helped him get the $50,000 he'd managed to smuggle out of Cuba into an American bank. You know, helped him open a bank account and get a credit rating and finance our house. She shrugged. You and Jack and Abe didn't exactly hang out with the Help's kids.
0: I was wounded, and I sputtered a defense. I was a kid of the Help, too, you know? Charlotte merely shrugged again.
2: Anyway... I was a good 10 years younger than you boys. Of course, you didn't notice me back then.
0: She grew quiet then, allowing me to flounder in the awkwardness. So you're in college. What are you studying? Her face brightened, and she turned it once again to me.
2: To be a teacher? I have two younger brothers, and I'm the first one in my family to speak English as my first language. So I was always drafted to help them with their homework, especially language arts, of course. And I... Loved it. It was my favorite part of the day, you know? Doing homework with my brothers. I graduated, I guess you could say, to helping my parents perfect their English. And later, I volunteered to teach ESL classes at-
0: Her enthusiasm had grown so animated that I had to laugh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't make fun of me!
0: I'm not, I assured her. I'm just, you know, delighted. You probably don't know this about me, but I'm in the process right now of building a school to help Mayan kids learn English. It's being built as we speak. I can't wait to get all the financial planning done for this pack of goons so I can make it my own priority again, and not just the contractors. Charlotte laughed with me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What do you know about running a school?
0: (laughs) She used both hands to pull her hair to the back of her head. She gathered up stray strands that were shining in the sunlight smoothed them down, and then tied the whole lustrous bundle back with a hair tie she'd been wearing around her wrist.
2: How will you decide on the curriculum, and set policy, and find teachers?
0: Well, I admitted, there are some details I still have to work out. She'd raised the exact concerns I'd placed at the back of my mind, at least while I worked out my current banking adventures. But I knew she was right, and I'd have to address these critical issues soon. At least start advertising for teachers and combing through resumes. But I didn't have to think about those problems at this precise moment in time. Right now, I could enjoy strolling along a wide, shady avenue in the company of a genuinely relaxed beauty and let myself fall into the fantasy my Charlotte-fevered brain was concocting. She'd find her life's work with me in Merida, move here and take over creating the curricula for my school, hiring and supervising the teachers we would employ, And eventually, she would discover that she loved me, too. And would move into my house, and together we would create a home as relaxed and beautiful as she was. And Abe? Well, even a cursory look at the damage he had caused for my new bank showed that he'd personally approved over 70 million in fraudulent loans. An excellent reason to fire his sorry ass. And I was sure, even if David and Candace wouldn't proactively cast out their old son, I could lobby the votes I needed from among the other shareholders to get the job done. Perfect love and perfect revenge. It was a brilliant daydream, but I didn't want to waste a moment more of my time in Charlotte's company in a daydream. I wanted to suck up every molecule of her scent, every second of her smile. I was about to suggest that we all head to Kisa sit in their garden courtyard and have an iced coffee, sample their white chocolate shaped like ears of corn and their pink peppercorn dark chocolate bites, when Pablo's cell phone began to ring. He excused himself, walked a few more paces ahead of all of us, and reached into the pocket of his still pristine white blazer, frowning as he checked the caller ID, touching the green button to answer the call, putting the phone to his ear. Yes. The sky over our small village was arctic blue, no trace of a cloud or storm. An ocean breeze careened across the boulevard, blowing tiny sand devils around us. It was late on a typical sultry afternoon. Dampness was everywhere, and it was peaceful. But typical of the tropics, a storm could always roar up in mere hours. Pablo ended his phone call and quickly punched in another. He barked some orders into the phone that he was just far enough away for any of us to hear, and slid it back into his pocket. He paused for just a moment before turning back to
1: us. My dear new friends, you must forgive us. Clint and I have been called to a meeting. If you will go in here, where it is cool. He ushered them into the door of the very chocolate shop where I had been hoping to sit with Charlotte. My driver will be here in five minutes to take you back to Clint's home. You may, of course, stay here as long as you like. You should try the chocolates. Very delicious. Simply tell my driver your pleasure. He is at your disposal. Clint.
0: He turned to me and took my arm, pulling me away from Charlotte and down the block towards the lot where he'd parked his Escalade. at a pace I had to struggle to match. You and I have much to discuss. Sure, Pablo, of course. At the lot, he beeped open one of the doors and practically shoved me towards the passenger side. What the hell is going on? Pablo seated himself behind the steering wheel, adjusted his seatbelt, and took another moment to process whatever news he had just received before he let me in on it.
1: Javier. What about him? He's dead. I hope you enjoyed
0: this episode of Staying Fortune. It was produced by myself, Joe Calderwood, and Jeff Messer. Casting by Charlie Wilson.
2: And performances by Haven Kai, Lauren Otis, Zach Hamrick, and Charlie Wilson.
0: Music written and performed by Freddie Elmberg.
3: thinking I'm on I'm trying to make you live it all I'm just a working man And the, oh my love says I can't get no sleep, can't get no rest The beauty you've lost Just throw me into the fire So get on your knees and say a prayer for I'm living this hell, it's eternity Cause I can't breathe. I can't get no relief. I've done my deed and I'm help bound I can't see my love around Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide I pray the devil take away the life of the dead man That took him from the light He was an innocent man working on a bridge And the devil sent a soul to make sure